is Off the Record, the weekly KOTO public affairs show that offers you, the listener, an opportunity to hear in-depth conversations on community topics and issues that matter. As always, you are encouraged to join the conversation by calling 728-4333. Now here's your host. Good evening, KOTO listeners. You are tuned into Off the Record. This is Julia Caulfield from the news team. I'm your host this evening. And we are talking with folks about Domestic Violence Awareness Month. That is October, where we recognize that month. It's not necessarily the lightest topic, but one that's definitely important to be having conversations about. I am joined in studio by Ainsley Fessenden. Client Services Manager at the San Miguel Resource Center, Leila Benitez, the Executive Director of the San Miguel Resource Center, and Emily McGow from the Telluride Regional Medical Center, a nurse practitioner over there. Thank you all for being here tonight and joining me to talk about this subject. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. Yeah, I've got to say, I think I've said it already, but I'm just so thankful and proud to be with these two wonderful women who are actually providing the services and are such a wealth of knowledge in our community. So, Yeah, well, so, great segue, Layla. <laughs> um, first off, um, do you mind just kind of talking listeners through a little bit what you do in this work in the community? Folks will also get to know your voice a little bit that way. Ainsley, we'll start with you. Sure, thank you. Um, so... I am the Client Services Manager at the San Miguel Resource Center. I've been with the Resource Center for just over three years now. Um, And um, so I am really responsible for our core services, domestic violence and sexual assault advocacy services. Um, And so I lead a team of victim advocates, both staff and volunteer advocates who work with and advocate for and support survivors of interpersonal violence. Um, So we, you know, our services really run the gamut from start to finish of um, someone experiencing any sort of domestic violence relationship um, or also who who have experienced sexual assault, but for the purposes of um, recognizing Domestic Violence Awareness Month, I'll focus on that. Um, So we are with survivors if they choose to report um, experiencing domestic violence to law enforcement we support them through that process um, through navigating the criminal justice system or the civil legal system through um, perhaps the divorce or custody process but even if survivors choose not to participate in the civil or criminal justice system we can still provide a wide breadth of services, financial assistance. Um, As we know, domestic violence is a very expensive crime to experience um, for victims. So um, we help people kind of gain financial stability and um, in in order to become independent from their partners. Um, And we also really support people through kind of healing from their trauma and recognizing that what they experienced was not their fault and that they are not alone and just making sure that they feel supported and that they have the resources um, to be able to achieve safety and stability. Um, So that's kind of my role at the Resource Center. We have other programming, but um, our client services program is definitely the, our core services that we provide. Absolutely. And so I started five weeks ago. I'm still in the counting it by week stage um, at San Miguel Resource Center, SMRC. 
And um, I have the really privileged honor to be leading a really amazing team of women who are providing those core services. Um, we have Ellie Green, who is providing us with the grant services, mm -hmm. applying for grants, managing grants, which in and of itself is a ton of work mm -hmm. that make it possible for us to provide these services along with private donations and government donations. And then also overseeing the prevention education program that we have throughout all of our school systems, all the way from here to Paradox, um, which is just amazing in and of itself because while Ainsley and her team are working to provide that emergency service and to really respond to violence once it's already happened exactly yeah. get that safe housing to do all of these things the prevention education program is so amazing because it's starting in the earliest grades in how do we deal with conflict how do we talk to each other how do we express being uncomfortable without resorting to violence and really making sure that those lessons are taught early so um, my role is just overseeing all of this. Luckily, there is that amazing team that is getting me up to speed. So, Yeah, Emily, can you talk a little bit about your role at the Med Center? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I have been at the Med Center for eight years. Um, my first seven years as an RN in primary care, registered nurse. Um, and about three years ago, I Four years ago, I went back to school and um, am now a family nurse practitioner, and I've been in that role for just over a year. Um, so I see a whole uh, spectrum of patients on a day-to-day -day basis, um, but one of the things that I've specialized in is um, sexual assault and forensic nurse examining um, or examinations. And um, myself and Elena Collins, who's a PA at the Med Center, both um, with very generous funding from SMRC, um, did the UC Health training in Colorado Springs to become sexual assault examiners. Um, and that was two years ago. Is that right, Ains? <laughs> that sounds right. <laughs> um, COVID time warp. Um, so two years ago, we did that training. We went out to Colorado Springs and we did um, in-person training there. And then I went back and did a preceptorship in one of the really busy hospitals in Colorado Springs um, to do forensic nurse examinations for um, domestic violence, um, strangulation, um, violent like criminal acts, and then also sexual assault. Um, and right now, um, that's... Uh, a service that we're providing at the med center um, through the emergency department. Um, so we can do 24 seven um, sexual assault exams and response. Um, but just on a day-to-day -day basis, um, we are a safe space for people to come for medical care um, and we can provide support for um, domestic violence um, survivors and get people linked in with SMRC if needed or if wanted, um, and other support services. And I think that Emily just gave me the reminder that I needed, which is, you know, another role that SMRC has played is really being that coordination center between the medical center, law enforcement, you know, advocates that can be there on behalf of our clients and we have an entire program called CCRC, which is the coordinated community or 
community coordinated community response uh, don't get me with these (laughs) These acronyms (laughs) they kill me but i think it's been a really it's a benefit to all of the residents and the clients in our community but i think it's also helped in ways beyond domestic violence and sexual assault with helping all of our law enforcement agencies from the sheriff's office to the marshals to the town of mountain village to work together to work with the medical center to coordinate with SMRC so that when someone comes into the system, no matter at what point it is, whether it's SMRC or the medical center first or law enforcement, we can have a coordinated response so people are getting the best care possible. As a reminder, um, folks, I forgot to mention this at the top, but um, Off the Record is a call-in program. So if you have any questions or comments, you have things you'd like to ask these experts we have with us this evening, please give us a call, 970-728-4333, and we'll bring your question up on the air. Um, You know, so we're talking about domestic violence, and I feel like the thing that we can easily jump to in our brain is like physical violence, right? That feels very um, easy to understand as a form of partner violence. But can you talk through a little bit, like what are we actually talking about? What does domestic violence look like when we're having these conversations about, yeah, partner violence? I think everyone's looking at Ainsley. Yeah. Yeah. I got this one. Um, Yeah. So just like you said, Julia, um, Physical abuse is what we most often think of when we think of domestic violence, Um, and it's certainly one of the most scary experiences that a victim or a survivor can experience. Um, But we also have um, the most common form and often the first form of abuse that survivors experience is emotional abuse. Um, Really, you know, comments, put-downs, snide remarks that survivors experience on a day-to-day basis from their partner that really erodes their self-esteem and oftentimes and this is just something that we hear from our our own clients is that um, that emotional abuse because it's so insidious and long-lasting it can often feel worse than being physically abused I've had clients tell me that I just rather get hit than experience what I had to experience so emotional abuse is the most common for sure and um often the most difficult to kind of overcome because of the um, isolation and shame that comes with it. Um, We also have sexual abuse, which is incredibly common in domestic violence relationships. And um, similarly, it comes with a lot of shame and um, survivors don't often like to reveal that that's something that they've experienced. And it's not necessarily um, rape, but it can be kind of pressure to have sex. It can be... um, wanting your partner to, or, you know, convincing a partner to do things that they're not ready or willing or um, feel comfortable doing um, in the, you know, in the context of a marriage or long-term relationship, which is really hard to navigate. Um, And then there's also financial abuse, which is kind of the least understood version of abuse, but it can be the, the form of abuse that keeps survivors in relationships for a long time because they feel very trapped. Um, They might own a house with their partner. They might have children together. They might be financially dependent on their partner. And it's very difficult to extricate oneself from a relationship um, if you are experiencing that form of abuse. Yeah. And I think that, you know, one of those indirect impacts is are to the children that are actually witnessing this in the house. We see this quite often and you know a child doesn't need to be physically abused 
to have major long-term impacts from having seen abuse in the home. And, you know, that is tied to long-term issues with mental health, with violence of their own, with problems in school. And it's absolutely indirect, but it, long-term, it's a, it has a huge impact. So, What do you think are um, maybe some of the biggest misconceptions you know you talked about shame and stigma what do you think are yeah misconceptions that folks have whether they are experiencing it themselves or know people who are experiencing or knowing that domestic violence exists that people have about it that just you know aren't realities um absolutely i think one of the major misconceptions or um assumptions that people make about survivors of domestic violence is you know people ask why don't they just leave um and that's obviously easier said than done um we know that it takes on average around seven attempts for a survivor of domestic violence to leave an abusive relationship um and there is a very legitimate fear of further abuse or death um if when, if and when, a survivor decides to attempt to leave a relationship. Um, on average, three women die um, every day at the hands of an intimate partner in the U.S. It's pandemic. It's not as if this is kind of a private family matter that can be swept under the rug. Um, and so it's, it's very difficult, I think, um, to to put the blame on survivors for not being able to um, leave their relationship quickly um, and decisively the first time they try to do so. Um, also, I hear this a lot from our clients is that many survivors don't necessarily want their relationship to end. They love their partner. They got together with their partner in the first place for a reason. They just want the abuse to end. So if they're experiencing manipulation or emotional abuse by a partner who continuously tells them, They'll try harder. They will change. They won't do that. They won't perform that abusive behavior again. Then they might be inclined to give them another chance because they do love them. Um, and that's really complex and difficult for those of us not experiencing those relationships to understand. But it's like incredibly real. Yeah. And I think there are two other misconceptions that I hear. One is it doesn't happen in small, close communities like ours. And if it did, we would know and we would do something. Um, often we might think things are not right with our friends' relationships, but nothing is said. Um, or we just may think, well, that's just them. That's the way they interact, but I haven't seen anything, and she hasn't come to work with a black guy, so she's fine. And this doesn't happen in Telluride. This doesn't happen in Norwood. We're, we're not those people. And the thing is, is it happens everywhere. You know, one in four women are going to experience this in their lifetime. It, geography does not protect you. And I think the other thing that people think will protect them is socioeconomic status. While the stressors of being struggling financially do contribute to domestic violence, there, there is no average wage for an abuser. It's happening across the board. And whether you're living in the big house in Aldosaro or you're living in an apartment, chances are pretty good either way that you're going to be um, just as prone or, you know, have that 
have that issue pop up. So I think that people thinking that, well, can't happen here and well, it won't happen to me, I'm protected. No, there's, it really is an equal opportunity offender. And how does, you know, you both spoke on it, both of it's a small town, it can't happen here. And also, you know, maybe fear after leaving a partner, you know, how does being in a small community, a community like Telluride, San Miguel County, how does that affect the work that y'all do, right? It's like if somebody tries to leave, chances are they're going to see that person they were in a relationship with in town somewhere. And how does that, um, I assume, make harder the work that y'all are doing and make it harder for somebody to actually leave. Absolutely. Um, and first, let me start off by saying our services at the San Miguel Resource Center are completely confidential. Um, confidentiality and anonymity is something that we strive to um, really make sure that our clients know that they have when they walk through our doors or when they call our helpline. Um, not only for their safety, um, but also because we recognize that we live in a small, tight-knit community and um, it could be a potential barrier to accessing our, what I like to think of, very important services. Um, if someone is afraid that they could run into a colleague or a friend or, um, you know, someone that they have a different relationship with when they walk through our doors. Um, so... It certainly, I think, creates some additional challenges, but that's why our confidentiality is our utmost value that we that we hold. And I am sure that the Regional Medical Center has the exact same values. Um, Definitely. And we just assure our clients um, when they first reach out to us that their um, whatever they share with us will stay with us and we are very transparent and have an open line of communication about what we will and won't share with their consent outside of the walls of, of, of the resource center. So thank you for letting me make that very clear. <laughs> and I just want to jump on that real quick. Um, something that's very important is those services that Ainsley is describing, they are free. Whether it's safe housing, whether it's helping with day-to-day -day expenses in the first few days after you leave, the first mm -hmm. few weeks, whether it's you just need to leave with clothes on your back, those services are free and we provide them regardless of your ability to pay across the board the same. And the other piece is, you know, making, making sure that there is a safe place for people to land is something that is one of our highest priorities and probably not something that we're gonna talk about online right now on the radio. But I want the public to know that we take it that seriously, that we are constantly looking and working at ways to make sure that when and if they're ready to make that choice, we have the safest possible options for them. Yeah. And just to add on the um, confidentiality piece at the med center, um, medical records are all confidential and um, particularly for something like this, um, a domestic violence um, concern or intimate partner violence or a sexual assault, um, the patient has to sign a release saying that the following people have access to their medical records. So it is completely confidential. Um, and really no one's gonna know if you're coming into the medical center for your annual physical or for 
birth control or for a sprained ankle or something like that. So um, I think that sometimes it can be perceived as it's it's not really an anonymous place to go um, and people are going to look at me in the waiting room and, and know that I'm here for something. But really we see people for a whole spectrum of care. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to add is um, I know we're referring to a lot of women as victims of domestic violence, but as Layla said, um, there really are no barriers to who is a victim um, and who's an abuser. So um, it really, it can be in a heterosexual relationship. It can be in a homosexual relationship. It can be um, men who are the victims. Um, and what we mostly talk about is women being the, the victims um, because we do see that more um, predominantly. Yeah, I will say that statistically, um, women make up over 80% of known victims of domestic violence. However, we also know that men are much less likely to report victimizations of domestic violence due to shame and stigma and a fear that um, they are not welcome or able to access services at domestic violence um, centers such as ours. So thank you, Emily, for bringing that up. I'd like to make it clear that um, the San Miguel Resource Center certainly serves um, male victims of domestic violence, gender non-binary survivors of domestic violence. Um, we are, you know, our doors are open to all people who identify as um, having survived interpersonal violence. Well said. Yeah. yeah. Um, listeners, you are tuned in to Off the Record on KOTO. We're talking about um, the heavy subject of domestic violence with folks from the San Miguel Resource Center and the Telluride Regional Medical Center. We're going to take a quick break, about a four minute and 19 second break, um, <laughs> to play a little bit of music. This one is... Um, I don't know. I think it was a good pick, <laughs> maybe. Um, for our listeners, if you have a question that maybe you don't want to ask on air, give us a call during this song. We'll just pick up the phone off the air so you can ask your question and then we'll have it answered um, by our guests when we come back. We'll be back in just a few moments. Thank you for tuning in to KOTO Telluride. FFA. After graduation, Mary Ann went out looking for a bright new world. Wanda looked all around this town and all she found was Earl.
That was Goodbye Earl by the Dixie Chicks, or the Chicks, as they're called now. <laughs> um, Coda listeners, you are in tune with Off the Record. We're recognizing Domestic Violence Awareness Month, um, talking about resources and things that are available in our own community. Emily, I wanted to ask you, um, you mentioned the work that you do with SANE exams and when someone has maybe experienced sexual assault or domestic violence and um, wants to take a medical route in what that might be, um, it maybe feels a little bit daunting of like, oh my gosh, what is this experience going to be? Can you give a rough talk through of like, if somebody comes to you and says, I need an exam, what will that look like for them? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it is um, a big unknown for a lot of people who aren't um, in medicine or in this um, realm um, of work. Um, so we can get um, patients who are victims of sexual assault or domestic violence through multiple different routes. Um, one route is through law enforcement. Um, the another is through the resource center and then patients can just call directly to the medical center and say i've been a victim of sexual assault or um i think i need this i'm not really sure what i need but i don't remember or i don't remember what happened and i need some support in this way um and sexual assault um, nurse examiner is what SANE stands for. Um, there's also sexual assault forensic examiners, which are not nurses, um, but other medical providers. So when we say a SANE exam, it's re kind of referring to the um, examiner's training. Um, and um, the, the biggest piece for a SANE exam is the medical exam. So ensuring that the patient is stable, that they have the appropriate medical care that they need. Um, and if they've been um, like injured, that we take care of any injuries that they have physically um, and that we get them kind of linked up with the appropriate treatment if they've been exposed to any sexually transmitted infections. Um, if they... Um, might have gotten pregnant um, from the assault. Um, so all of those things are part of the, the medical piece of the exam. So we do a full head-to-toe um, evaluation, like we look in ears and mouth and eyes and um, listen to heart and lungs and belly. Um, and every step of the way, there's a consent process. So um, not like at any point, there's it's not a requirement to do every part of the exam. Um, and then um, part of the exam as well can be a pelvic exam or a genital exam. Um, throughout the, the whole exam, um, we can take forensic photography. Um, so if there are any injuries, we can document those on by photograph. Um, and then um, we're... At the medical center, we're part of the UC Health SANE Telehealth um, Collaborative, which is this amazing program um, through the forensic nurse examiner team at UC Health in Colorado Springs, where we have 24-7 access to a super experienced, qualified SANE. Um, and we have a, a laptop um, as well as an iPad and this very special camera. Um, and so this scene can be 
helping us through the whole exam, answering any questions or troubleshooting if there's any um, issues throughout the exam. Um, why that's important here and in other rural places is that um, while we know that sexual assault and domestic violence is prevalent, um, not a, a lot of people um, actually come in and get assessed for um, medical reasons or for evidence collection, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, and so it's not a skill, um, a medical skill that we use as SANES every day, um, every week, every month. Um, sometimes a whole year goes by and we don't do an exam. Um, and it's very specialized training um, and procedure. Um, so to have um, like I think the last exam I did, the um, scene that was on the other side of the telehealth was in Arkansas um, and has like 20 years experience and could say like, um, you know, did you think about doing this step next or um, did you already ask this question? Um, so that was that's it's super helpful um, and one of the pieces of equipment that we have from like through that collaborative is called a colposcope which is a microscope um, that's especially for looking at the cervix and um, the inside of the vagina um, and we can take pictures um, documenting any kind of injury internal injury there um, the other piece I think that most people think of when they think of a SANE exam is the evidence collection. Um, and so we can do, as I mentioned, photographic evidence collection. Um, and we can also do physical DNA evidence collection. So that would be um, after an assault, collecting any clothing that might have DNA evidence on it. Um, it would be looking for any injuries like bruises or abrasions or scratches and we actually take um, like little q-tips and we rub that spot with the q-tip um, to try and collect any dna that might be on the skin um, so that's all part of the exam um, a big part of it as well is the history of what happened um, and we document that word for word based on the history of what happened um, that really dictates kind of how the evidence goes and the um, the exam in general and also what kind of preventive medicine that we do um, and then pretty early on in that um, that whole process, we do offer, if SMRC hasn't been contacted, we offer that as an option. Um, and we also talk at the beginning of the exam about whether the, um, the patient wants to re report to law enforcement. Um, that is in some cases mandatory, so for minors um, and also for the elderly. Um, it's a mandated report, um, but for people 18 to 64, um, for the most part, it's a, it's a consent is, is, um, obtained. And then, um, what was the other piece I was going to say? Um, oh, and then if you, if someone doesn't want to report, but they think, oh, I want to have the evidence collected and maybe think about whether I want to report it, um, we can do an anonymous evidence collection. Um, so we do the same full exam as much as they, they want. Um, and then we send all of the evidence to the state lab um, and it can sit for three years. Um, and at any point during that time, the, the victim or the patient 
survivor, um, to use all the terminology, um, <laughs> can decide that they want to report that or have the ev evidence run. If I could just, I want to say one thing because I don't think that you're going to say it. Um, yes, SMRC has made it possible for this SANE training to occur. Um, there have been cases where survivors have had to wait up to four days to have this type of um, forensic examination, SANE examination happen and had to travel great distances. Um, and so, yes, while SMRC has made it possible for this training to occur, you know, Emily and Elaine Collins and others have volunteered their time to get this training to really support the community. They've done this of their own volition, and it's a huge impact um, on our survivors, but I think it's also a huge impact on law enforcement knowing that this capability is there and it helps us to get these perpetrators off the streets, to be frank, um, as well as even if it's not about going the legal route, at least getting the care that someone needs in that immediate aftermath. So just wanted to thank Emily and Elena so much for volunteering for that. I mean, it involves leaving the area to get training. It's days out of their lives and ongoing training. So thank you. Thank you, Leila. Yeah. Um, I had another thought that I was going to share. Um, oh, and so uh, we we do try to provide 24-7 access to these services. So if um, a patient came to the ER in the middle of the night, they can the person in the ER can call me or Elena. Um, sometimes we're out of town, um, so it can't always happen, but... Um, People can travel to Montrose, um, Cortez, Durango, all of these places have um, services now. And um, we don't provide pediatric exams in Telluride. Um, the Dolphin House in Montrose is really the place that we refer. So for, for some adolescents, we can provide those exams here. Um, but for kiddos, we really... Um, refer to the pediatric experts down in Montrose. Yeah. Kind of going, so that's if we enter through kind of the medical side of things. Ainsley, can you give kind of a same overview of what can somebody expect if they're coming to the San Miguel Resource Center kind of as their, their first stop or one of their stops um, in this experience? Absolutely. Um, so people encounter us or are referred to us through a myriad of avenues. Um, oftentimes people just kind of know about us. We've been a resource in the community for a few decades now. Um, sometimes they are referred to us by the medical center, by law enforcement, by perhaps their therapist or a friend, um, or they see one of our stickers in a bathroom. We have them here at Coda. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so... We do um, staff a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week crisis helpline. So a lot of people, their first point of contact with us is through just picking up the phone and calling us. Um, and we also operate a um, walk-in center. We're down on South Pine across the street from Smugglers. Um, we operate just during business hours, Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. But at any given time, if someone just wanted to walk through our door, there'd be an advocate there to help them. Um, so yeah, if someone um, reaches out to us for the first time, 
We're going to treat them with compassion and respect and share with them that our services are totally confidential, except as Emily brought up, which I'm so glad you did. We are also mandatory reporters um, for um, victims of a crime under the age of 18. Um, so we would have to report um, someone's experience if they reached out to us um, and were a minor or shared with us an experience of abuse um, um, by a minor. But with that being said, the rest <laughs> for all adults, <laughs> um, our services are completely confidential. And then we're just going to really um, show that person a lot of care and assure them that they are not alone, that we believe them, that we are here for them, and that they do not need to go through whatever their next steps are alone. Um, and then we will open up the, the floor for them to really share what their experience has been um, and get a sense of what their needs or what their goals might be. We are very client-led, client-driven. We don't tell people what to do. We understand that it takes um, several attempts to perhaps leave uh, an abusive relationship. So we are not, we don't end services if, if someone is not yet ready to make that step. Um, but we do definitely provide information, um, resources, and kind of our perspective on what makes up a healthy or unhealthy relationship and what we know to be true about the dynamics of power and control in abusive relationships, just so that someone can, you know, if they did not necessarily identify as being um, a survivor of domestic violence, that that is an identity that they might feel comfortable um, looking into or want to do more research about. So we provide that information. Um, we provide a lot of options um, and resources and um, additional um, avenues of research that they can go down on their own if they're still kind of in that pre-contemplation phase. If someone is ready to leave their relationship, we are going to be very action-oriented. We're going to think through what their goals are. We're going to start making plans and phone calls and getting people set up with whatever they may need, whether it's attorneys or finding new housing or um, reaching out to law enforcement to schedule a time to make a report um, or, you know, going and buying groceries for the week because they're experiencing food instability, whatever the case may be. And whatever the survivor says is their top priority, we're going to try to um, help them meet their goals. And then ongoingly, I mean, our hotline is 24 hours um, and people can call us anytime, even if they're just looking to kind of process um, the trauma that they've experienced or um, they just need to vent about like, you know, uh, an altercation that they had with their ex during a custody exchange or something like that. We are there for them ongoingly or if, you know, even if they're job hunting and they need someone to look over their resume or help them practice for an interview um, that's coming up. That's something that we can definitely provide. We just kind of let the client decide what is what their needs are and what's best for them and we help them try to work towards those goals. Yeah. You know, we were talking uh, a little bit about this before we hopped on the air, but for folks who, you know, Layla, you said earlier, we might know people who are like, oh, well, maybe that's just the dynamic of their relationship, but we haven't seen anything or whatever that might be. 
you know, a lot of us will also, through our lives, know friends or people who we do know that there's something that is not good in what's going on in their relationship. There is violence of whatever type that may be. How do we, like, how should we, as everyday people, go about supporting those folks if they're ready to leave, if they're not ready to leave, whatever that looks like? How do we show support for them um, in a way that is meaningful and actually, like, genuinely helpful? Thank you so much for asking that question, Julia. It's such a good one. And I mean, we we grapple with this all the time as well um, in our work, but I think, first of all, we should never blame the victim for what they've experienced. Um, it's not helpful to ask, like we said earlier, why didn't they just leave? Um, abuse is never the fault of the victim who's experiencing it. Um, on that same note, we should hold offenders accountable. If you have a friend or relative, a brother, mother, neighbor, um, who is in your observation exerting power and control over their intimate partner you need to call them out on that when safe you need to you know share with them that their behavior is inappropriate and that they're using abusive behaviors um, we cannot we cannot expect victims to have to carry all that weight um, challenging misconceptions like we already addressed um, earlier in the show that um, only women are victims of domestic violence and that domestic violence is a private matter. We need to publicly say that that's not true and that we know that um, domestic violence is unfortunately all too common and that we need to um, address it openly and not kind of have this veil of the stigma around it. Um, we need to address the fact that abuse is intentional. It is not actually people losing control or an anger management issue. It is abusive people using power and control to um, exert force of any kind over their partner. Um, and so um, kind of just like thinking about how we talk about domestic violence and how we think through potential solutions. Um, we also know that domestic violence is intersectional and we do know that um, although anyone of any socioeconomic status, race, ethnicity, gender can be a victim of and also um, exert domestic violence. We also know that people who hold various marginalized identities can at times experience those effects more drastically. It may be, you know, someone who is concerned about reporting to law enforcement because of their immigration status or someone who does not generally feel safe um, reporting to law enforcement due to um, historic violence enacted upon their communities by law enforcement. Um, all of that we need to kind of address openly or else we're not going to be able to really come up with solutions to ending violence in our communities. I think that on all of those, I think I completely agree. And I think one of the hardest things um, as a self-diagnosed bossy person is wanting to go in there and fix it. And it is so important in this space to be there for your friends, your acquaintances, your coworkers, to be there as a sounding board, just an active listener who is 
listening, engaging, not judging, and being a safe space. Um, it can take a lot of conversations. It can take many months. It could take longer. But for there to be no judgment and you just there is is maybe with the only safe person they have, maybe because of, you know, the status of their family and how close-knit they are or religious pieces where it's just not okay to talk that way about your spouse. It, you may be the only safe haven they have. So actively listening, gently asking questions and trying to better understand their situation and letting them know that you're there. It doesn't matter. You hear them, you believe them, and you're there. Um, I think can can be majorly impactful, and you don't actually have to physically do anything for for to really have that impact. I also think um, that you know Ainsley mentioned that emotional um, trauma is so common um, in domestic violence, and being the empowerer um, with our friends. So if the people we know are getting um, like gaslit or um, just struck down over and over emotionally, we can be the ones that are actually presenting the reality that they're strong, they're smart, they're, they have the power, even though the power has been taken from them. Yeah. Um, Ainsley, you've mentioned... Um, the 24-hour hotline that y'all have, which I know is staffed by local volunteers. So for those folks who are um, maybe the friends or acquaintances or community members who want to take a, a step further to not just be an on-the-street listening ear, but maybe want to, um, yeah, go, go the extra step to be part of that hotline, what does a training for that look like and, and how do people get involved? Yeah, absolutely. So we facilitate a 40-hour victim advocate training about three times a year. Um, and this 40-hour training, it's a hybrid of in-person and online coursework. And um, once someone has completed that training, they are a certified victim advocate in the state of Colorado, which is very cool. And they could even, um, if they were to move to a different part of Colorado, they would still be certified um, having taken our training. Um, so we are still looking to schedule our fall slash winter training. So stay tuned for that. But we will be updating our website and our social media pages, um, our Facebook and Instagram when we have those dates um, in place. And um, if not this winter, we usually hold a spring slash summer training. Um, and we try to hold a Telluride training and also a West End training in Norwood or Natarita. Um, so, you know, the hope is that anyone is able to access them um, in their local community. And they're usually held in, in the evenings after people um, get off work. Yeah. And, you know, there there's another way to make this a part of your life. And that is we've got um, three job openings right now. And Julia, don't turn off my mic, please. <laughs> I won't. <laughs> but um, there is a ton of potential. And I know a lot of us want to have work that's meaningful. I know that's why I took this position. And um, I would just want to make people aware that we do have th these three positions. One of them is a community engagement manager, which is responsible from everything, the advocacy that Ainsley was talking about, to outreach in the community, to managing our diversity quality and inclusivity practices. Um, it's a really big job. It's kind of new to us in this format, so we're excited about it. Also, our advocate coordinator, 
who puts on that volunteer training that Ainsley was just talking about, coordinates day-to-day -day activities, the trainings, also does the advocacy, and is a big part of our outreach in the community. And then we're also looking for a Spanish-speaking advocate to really help us to make sure, you know, Ainsley is fluent in Spanish, but she takes days off. <laughs> <laughs> so it would be wonderful to have another Spanish-speaking advocate on staff. So, yeah. Thank you for letting yeah. me get that of in, course. Julia. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, recognizing that there is no magic bullet there's nothing that we, we can't snap our fingers and have domestic violence go away in our community. Um, but from each of you, from all y'all's perspectives, what are maybe a few small tangible steps that you think as a community we can take to um, make this less of a reality in San Miguel County? Who wants to, Who wants to start? <laughs> um, I think that it's this is a big first step, is talking about it, and then talking about it, you know, in parenting groups, talking about it in our churches, talking about it in the schools, you know. Teen dating violence is also, you know, through the roof, and the numbers are staggering. We need to be talking about this way before we get to this point. Um, you know, this is primarily happening between the ages of 16 to 24, and then it continues, but it starts early. So I think the more we can start talking about it in our, in our peer groups and support groups and churches, um, the better. Yeah, I'll just tack on to that. Um, domestic violence affects everyone. It is not a woman's issue. Um, it is unfortunately cyclical and generational and um, the more that we understand and the more that we can speak openly about the prevalence of domestic violence the more that we can um, identify solutions and identify strategies with which to combat it and prevent it truly um, and I think approaching the issue with care and compassion is the number one thing that we can do is, is, you know, we are all in this together. This is like not something that should be, that people should be ashamed of, that should be stigmatized, that should be kind of kept behind closed doors. We just need to really openly address the issue so that we can, um, as a community, come up with solutions. I think you two covered it. <laughs> um, but keeping the lines of communication open, I think, is just so integral to forming the base to this um, structure that we need to kind of rebuild and um, normalize talking about all of these um, sensitive topics um, and normalizing consent for mm -hmm. everything. Um, not that domestic violence is a consent issue, um, but I think starting really young with, with that can can be helpful for just forming positive relationships. Yeah, yeah, and for, for the adults in our community, modeling healthy relationships to our children. And, you know, how do you want your child, your son or your daughter, um, to 
relate to their peers, to their future intimate partners? Um, are you showing that to them in your marriage or in your adult relationship, in your friendships, in your with your colleagues? Um, maybe some self-reflection um, could go a long way for all of us. Yeah, and, you know, we do do a lot of prevention education at SMRC, but we do a lot of the work that we've been talking about this evening. And so if I could just make one call out is, you know, we do depend on donations to, to do a lot of the work. A lot of the work that we do is not covered by grants. You know, a lot of the transitions that we help people make when they come in um, during those tough times are not covered. And so, you know, every dollar helps. So um, our website is smrcco.org. That's smrcco.org. And you can find out how to make a donation there. And like I said, Every dollar helps um, whether you can donate there. There's also information about how to volunteer there. It's not only about advocacy. We could use your help with events, with things in the office. Um, but that's a tremendous area of support for us. We have a team of rock stars, just like we do at the Med Center. Um, but we still need community support to make it happen. I feel like we kind of just did this, but we are nearing the end of our program. This hour always goes by so quickly. <laughs> um, and I say that at the end of every show. <laughs> um, but any closing thoughts that um, any of you would like to leave listeners with? Um, yeah, any, Layla, you just gave some, but information about how folks can get in touch with you if they'd like to um, chat with you about what you're able to provide in terms of services. Final closing thoughts. I just wanted to clarify, I know um, Ainsley and Layla mentioned that everything at SMRC is totally free, um, all the services, and with sexual assault exams, they are also completely free um, for sexual assault. Um, and then I also wanted to clarify that um, one of the ways that domestic um, abuse, I think, can manifest is in power over health care. Um, and we do provide confidential care um, if somebody needs birth control or sexually transmitted infection screening or um, testing or treatment. Those are all things that we can do confidentially. Um, and I think it's, it's good to know in the public that um, we're a safe space where you can access that. You should have control over your own body and whether you want to be pregnant or get pregnant or not is um, really important. Well said. Yeah. And then I'll just plug our hotline number <laughs> um, in case anyone needs it. Um, we have a toll-free number which is 1-844-816-3915 or our local number. It'll get you to the same place, 970-728-5660. That's 970-728-5660. Give us a call. Well, thank you so much. We have reached the end of our hour. I would like to thank everybody who tuned in this evening thank you for for listening um thank you to my guests who gave their evening to be here and chat with us about as i said this not necessarily light subject ainsley you said it's my whole day today so <laughs> it's depending on your perspective <laughs> um but i also think yeah you have to find lightness and um smiles in hard topics as well all that to say mm -hmm. um emily mcgow Leila benitez and ainsley Fessenden.
Um, <laughs> thank you all so much for being here and chatting with me. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. We will be back next week with more Off the Record. Of course, we'll have more news for you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Off the Record. Opinions expressed on this show are those of our guests. Join us again next week for another installment. And in the meantime, drop us a line at news at koto.org with feedback and ideas. Oh,